You're listening to episode 118 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. What's up, storytellers? We are nearing our 100th iTunes review and are currently at review number 99. Thank you so much to all of you who left a rating and a review for 88 Cups of Tea. I know it's a whole process to get through all the steps and it means the world to us that you took the time. And thank you so much to our listener with the username Miss Ham, who recently rated us five stars and said our show is perfect for writers and readers. She continued to write, This is my favorite podcast. I loved listening to interviews from my favorite YA authors and listening to authors I have not yet read. The interviews are so personal and really make me feel like I'm getting to know the authors as both writers and people. Also, the interviews are very inspiring to aspiring authors. I've heard a lot of great advice. Thank you so, so much for taking the time to leave that thoughtful review. That was so sweet. Storytellers, if you haven't yet, please be sure to head to our iTunes page or on any platform where you listen to us and hit the subscribe button to stay up to date on all of our new episodes coming up this year. I would so appreciate if you could take a few minutes out of your day to help us out and leave a rating and a review for our show. Now on to the next part of our intro, we have a private Facebook group. It's kind of a magical place for fellow listeners and storytellers to connect and hang out. We have weekly threads where we check in with each other about storyteller-related things, and I also chat very closely with our group members to involve them with our podcast and community-related decisions that help shape the growth and direction of 88 Cups of Tea, including, but not limited to, voting who they would love to hear next on the show. If these are things that jump out at you, we would love to hang out with you in our group at 88cupsoftea.com slash fbgroup. It's so fun in there, and I'm really proud to share that our group is filled with the kindest and most caring members. Join us over at 88cupsoftea.com slash fbgroup. Before we introduce today's special guests, I have an exciting announcement. I'll be moderating a panel called Seven Asian American Authors You Should Be Reading, hosted by the New York Public Library and features authors Stacey Lee, Rhoda Baeza, Sona Charapatra, Emily X. Arpan, Karuna Riazi, and two of our very own 88 Cups of Tea guests, Heidi Heilig and Jenny Hahn. It's all happening in my hometown in New York on Saturday, February 17th at 1 p.m. at the Chatham Square Library location. For all of my New York and East Coast listeners, I would love to meet you and see you there. Now on to our guests, I'm so happy to introduce Amy Kaufman and Megan Spooner to our show. Megan is the author of Hunted and the Skylark Trilogy, and Amy is a co-author of The Illuminae Files. Amy and Megan are longtime friends, and they've traveled quite a lot together and have even lived with each other. After listening to their episode, you'll completely understand what I mean when I say they're the epitome of friendship goals. In today's episode, we discuss how traveling has directly impacted their writings, both individually and together as they co-authored their newest book, Unearthed. We dive into all the details of their latest book together, how the idea came to fruition from their travels, and what it was like writing the book together. Unearthed is the first in a duology, and the film rights have been optioned by the production company Cross Creek Pictures, the same company that produced Black Swan, and has Doug Lehman from The Born Identity attached to direct. 
For our listeners who are especially interested in co-authoring, you'll want to pay special attention to Megan and Amy when they walk us through why mutual respect is a key foundation to their successful and healthy partnership as co-authors, how they stay aligned with their book's main goal by assigning primary responsibilities, and how to productively and efficiently work through disagreements as co-authors. They also share really helpful advice on finding writing partners for yourself and what to look out for. We also get into how Megan landed a literary agent and how Amy became represented by the same literary agency. We deep dive into some real talk about finding your fit when it comes to literary representation and what to be aware of when you're figuring out which literary agent to work with. In case you missed our announcement last week, we added Instagram story takeovers for many of our upcoming episodes. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea to catch Amy and Megan's Instagram story takeover, where you'll get a super fun behind the scenes glimpse at their writing life. Now let's get started with our conversation. Hey everyone, we have none other than Amy and Megan on the show. How are you? We're great. Thank you for having us. Yeah, we just got done with our tour and we're having a great time. Oh, I'm so excited to jump in. Our listeners love you ladies a lot. They've been asking for you on the show in our private Facebook group. Sometimes I ask, I just check in. I'm like, hey, who do you guys want to hear from? Is there anyone in particular? And then they mention your names, specifically both of you. A lot of them love your Starbound trilogy and have fallen in love with you because of that and can't wait to hear from you. So I'm very excited about this. Before we kick it off, can we get a little bit of a snapshot of what Unearth is about? Sure. So we like to describe Unearthed as Indiana Jones teams up with Lara Croft in space. Ooh, how has your tour been going? It's been great. I mean, one of the best things about being a writer is that you spend your whole life sitting at a desk by yourself, writing words on a page, and you never get to interact with your readers except when you're on tour. And that's one of the best things about it. Nice. And Amy, how is it like for you coming all the way here to team up with Megan to do this? Oh, it's so fantastic because if nothing else, I mean, this is how we get to see each other. Yeah. Otherwise, we wouldn't get to talk to each other face to face. Yeah. And, you know, we text all day and we video chat and we call each other. But there's nothing like just being in the same place for an extended period of time. For that alone, it's worth it. Like Meg said, getting to connect with people over your writing is amazing. I think it was I'm probably wildly misquoting, but I think Stephen King was the one who said that writing is the closest we can get to telepathy, that if Meg and I can imagine something and we can manage to write it down well enough, then readers get to come and imagine it with us and go to the same place we did. And seeing them and talking to them about that is just amazing. It really is like magic. I definitely want to jump into more about how you met each other. But before that, do you mind if we could just tap into a little bit about how each of you fell in love with storytelling? I was really interested in storytelling from a very young age. I decided at four years old, that I was going to be an author after a year long obsession with Maurice Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are. I love that book so much. And it was the realization that another person had written that book that really clinched it for me. I mean, when you're a child, you kind of don't think about where books come from or where movies come from. You don't think about a writer having created that idea. And when my mom explained to me what an author was, I thought that was just the most magical thing that you could possibly do with your life. And I was hooked. Your parents were encouraging of it or was there any pushback? They were definitely always very supportive. Uh, but when I was in high school and college and I was doing a lot of writing of fan fiction and fan based stories, particularly with Amy and with other online friends, they thought that was kind of a waste of time. And they tried to sort of shut that down a little bit. And of course, that led to us writing these broken stars together. So I'm glad I didn't. You met each other a while back. Oh, yeah. We've 
known each other for over 10 years. Oh, my and we've God. been riding together since the day we met. I love that. Okay, so we're going to dive into that a little bit more later to backtrack. As soon as you fell in love with wanting to write and becoming an author and realizing that, were you just staying on track and every course that you took really focused on writing and then you went to school specifically for writing as well? Well, I actually really thought that I had to have a day job in order to support my habit of writing. But the problem is that none of the day job alternatives that I thought of were at all <laughs> practical. Like, I mean, it was like astronaut, marine biologist, and particularly a marine biologist that was actually in the water swimming with dolphins all the time. So that's what I thought they did. Archaeologist. And of course, it was like the Indiana Jones archaeologist. So like none of my day jobs were particularly practical. Honestly, being a writer of fiction was probably the most practical of all of them. I find that so interesting because there's so many people I've spoken to who never realized that becoming an author could be a real thing. You're one of the few who are like, oh, this is a thing and I'm going to pursue it. I feel like a lot of authors feel like, oh, what I read, oh, it's written by someone who died. And Amy, how about you? Was your story a little bit similar? I am literally from the I thought that was by someone who died camp. That's, oh that's what God. I always say is growing up, I thought all authors were dead. <laughs> Or maybe, you know, lived somewhere on Author Island or somewhere and were all isolated and off doing their thing. No, I've been storytelling as long as I can recall. Mm. I literally didn't know that you could be an author as a job. And I think the first inkling I had of it was when I was in eighth grade and I was chosen by my school, I think because I sort of overlapped between the two categories of likes to read and probably won't embarrass us in public to go along and hear a couple of authors speak in public. Their names were uh, Isabel Carmody and Melina Marchetta. Uh, I think Melina's quite well known in the US and Isabel less so, but she's an icon in Australia. And the two of them were so funny and silly and human that I distinctly remember going home. I would have been 13 years old and staring at my bookshelf that night and thinking, oh, so people did this, <laughs> you know, closely followed by I'm a person. Even then, I didn't think it was a thing I could do. We did careers testing in 11th grade, and they literally said I could be a writer. And I remember thinking, oh, I wish that was a real job. I mean, I think for both of us, the sort of pivotal moment was the realization that these stories were written by people mm -hmm. and that these people weren't all that different from us mm -hmm. and that we could actually do that, too. I think that realization is the real magic moment. Absolutely. Can you share a bit about where you guys grew up? And do you feel like the setting of where you grew up affected the way you approach storytelling? Oh, that's really interesting. It certainly does for me. So I grew up mostly in Australia, but my mum is Irish. And so we would go back to Ireland frequently. Oh, lucky. <laughs> well, the whole extended family was there. So all we had to do was get there. And then we had, I mean, the Irish family is a cliche for a reason, a million relatives that we could <laughs> lump on and stay with. And we would just do the rounds. And you know, Irish storytelling is, again, also a cliche for a reason. There's the Irish tradition of the Shonaki, who was, you know, the traveling storyteller in a preliterate society who would pass on stories and the laws and not just tell the stories, but use them to influence what was happening around them and use them to teach. And that's rich in Irish culture even today. Does that mean that there's one specific person in your family that plays that role? Let's say either your grandma or grandpa that is the main storyteller? I think it's very much passed around. Traditionally, the Shonakis would either hold a position sort of assisting a chieftain or they would be itinerant. But these days, if you have the gift of the gap, you tell stories. Oh, this is my first time hearing about this. 
when you visit family and relatives, can you describe it? Is it after dinner, you chatting and you start telling the stories or is it you make it like an announcement? No, it's completely woven through culture. So there's no oh, special moment of transitioning from now we're having a gossip to now we're telling a story. I it's see. just okay. that. Passing on most information becomes a story. Kind of laughing and nodding beside me because I'm (laughs) incapable of just conveying a simple piece of information. It's true. (laughs) Yeah. I have to tell a story while I'm doing it. I always take the long way around. It's miraculous to me that she didn't realize her whole life, I mean, until she was an adult, that she was meant to write stories because she's literally telling stories with her every breath. That's amazing. I'm here imagining a fireplace and all this stuff, crackling wood. Megan, how about you growing up and what was that like where you grew up and how did that affect the way you approached telling stories? My upbringing is nowhere near as exotic and glamorous <laughs> as Amy in Australia and Ireland. I grew up in Northern Virginia and I think probably one of the most important parts of growing up for me in terms of becoming a storyteller was so I was really shy and very bookish and pretty much a geek growing up. I didn't have a lot of friends and I read a lot of books up until high school when I went to a magnet school for kids with an aptitude for science and technology. So all my friends at that school were also studious and geeky and shy and really interested in things like fantasy and science fiction and anime and counterculture and graphic novels and superheroes and all of those things that I love. And I think that being around all those people was what pushed me to finally start writing and sharing fan fiction And that was a huge moment for me because I could hand out my fan fiction to my friends and they would, of course, they were all really positive and friendly and happy to read it. But just that experience of sharing my words with other people and saying, oh my gosh, this really is as amazing as I'd hoped it would be, really cemented the fact that I knew I was going to be a writer. Ooh, okay. Love that. I also know that you guys travel quite a bit. Is this something that you do consciously and intentionally to inspire you for ways to dig out more stories? Or is this just a part of your lifestyle? Oh, it absolutely is a huge source of inspiration. Travel for me is the one surefire way to get over writer's block. If I'm Mm. stuck on a story or I don't know what to write next, as soon as I sort of leave the familiar confines of my life and see something new, the ideas just start flowing. Kind of can't help it. Sometimes you want to just be in the moment and exploring other cultures and seeing new things. And you kind of don't want all of these stories about tomb raiding and space travel and scavengers and Oxford scholars. You don't want all of these random ideas creeping in on your experience. But I guess that's sort of the price we pay. I mean, I think sometimes I will travel to figure something out for a story. And sometimes I just travel to see what I find. I mean, I spent all through university and it took me a long time to exit university because I did not want that real job. (laughs) I would go away for three months every year and go backpacking. I think it's probably telling that when I look at my, my holiday snapshots, everyone else will be facing one way, getting the beautiful view, and I'll be facing the other way, getting the gate that we came through, thinking, oh, I really like that rust. That's the one detail I'm gonna use somewhere to evoke something. I think, you know, stories show up because when you're traveling, the part of your brain that says what if Mm. is sort of on high alert all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's the part of your brain that stories come from. Absolutely. 
Which country do you think had the biggest influence on on Earth? So that was a road trip we took together in the US. Actually. What? Yeah. Wait, okay, we need to get enough. into this. Where'd you start? Where'd you end up? Where'd you go through? So we were in Vegas because my big brother used to live there and we wanted to go on a road trip to the Grand Canyon because neither of us had ever seen it before. I live here in the US and I had never seen it. Me too. Because going there, I remember we were talking about Although it's called the Grand Canyon, we were sort of saying, oh, we hope it's big. Like, we like, hope what it's if not, not disappointing. Yeah, <laughs> we get there and we get out and it's just a hole in the ground. And we're like, we came all this way. We have to pretend it's exciting or something. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, not that it's going to be small, but we were looking for awe, you know? We were we wanted to be just, like, completely knocked over Blown by the Blown away. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and we're driving through this amazing landscape and, and well, I say we're driving. My husband's driving while we talk about <laughs> stories. And, and Meg said... I feel like this is a silly thing to say, but I've always just imagined that I would drive up on the road and I would just look across to my right, specifically to my right, and the Grand Canyon would just be there by the side of the road and it would be amazing. And now I'm getting really nervous. And then my husband, who is a man of very few words, says, <laughs> look right, Meg. Yeah. And we look right. And there is <laughs> the, the Grand Canyon. <laughs> and it is bigger than we imagined. Oh, it my God. And we arrived right at sunset. So all of the stone was like oh. on fire. And it was just this <gasps> glorious vista and it was so much more amazing than we ever could have imagined i cannot wait to go and see it for myself i don't know how i still have not seen it get on it it is so worth it i am such an embarrassment to an american i'm like i have not even seen it this is so <laughs> bad that sounds beautiful i just got bit by wanderlust bug again think of us when you're on the edge well and so meg you threw in a bit of petra as well didn't you yeah so a lot of the in the very beginning of unearthed our characters are fleeing from a group of rival scavengers and they're striving through this winding deep canyon full of red rock. And that is very much from the Grand Canyon and from our trip there. But the temple itself, the way that it's carved into the stone and feels a part of the landscape, that is really from a trip that I took to Jordan when I got to see Petra, the ancient stone city. And that was just an experience that blew me away. And those images have stayed with me ever since. And honestly, writing those temples in Unearthed was kind of a way to get those images out, to get them to stop haunting me. <gasps> I just added another place to my list of need to travel to. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's so incredible. It was in a part of a trip where we went to both Egypt and Petra, my family and I. And it was just amazing. I look like I'm drooling right now. I'm just like, oh my God, that sounds so beautiful. And FYI, just a side note, I hope you get to make it to Cambodia one day. Absolutely. Cambodia is actually the last ancient wonder site on my bucket list. Yes. I just did Machu Picchu earlier this year. Oh my God, how was that? So Angkor Wat. Oh, it was unbelievable. <gasps> it was so incredible and nothing like what I had imagined in the oh. best possible way. How was the hike up? Was it tough? It was definitely difficult. I don't recommend it for the faint of heart and I don't recommend it if you're afraid of heights, which I actually am, but that's a separate story. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, you know, it was one of those moments where I'm like, I can either be afraid of heights and miss out on this mm -hmm. amazing thing, or I can just suck it up and be terrified and then be glad I did it. I'm in the same boat with that. That sounds gorgeous. Okay. When are you going to head to Cambodia next? Well, I don't know. Hopefully next year, actually. 
Would you go together? We're looking for some places to go and retreat together. So I suspect we might. I feel so bad. Like, imagine I'm so rude. I'm like, oh my gosh, I just forced an invitation. Sorry about that. No, 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 no. We my travel together lives, yeah. all the time. We travel okay, good. We travel together a lot. My big brother lives in Thailand now and he's already... Wait, is this the same one who's living in Vegas? Yes, he moved. He facilitates all kinds of travel just by living in interesting places. And being Australian, I mean, we're geographically a part of Southeast Asia. So I've spent a lot of time around Thailand and Vietnam and that part of the world and Cambodia. Cambodia is the only place there that I'd like to go to that I haven't yet. So traveling has been really impactful on your writing, and I see how that's directly affected Unearth in a positive way, and I loved hearing that. Now you guys were writing fan fiction together. I'm assuming you met online in those fan fiction forums? Yeah, we met online and knew each other for years before we managed to meet in person. You could like online pen pals. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So absolutely. Cute. Well, I was in college and you were in grad school. I was, yeah. And... At the end, I mean, we'd been friends for years at that point. And when I graduated, she said, well, why don't you just come take a gap year and stay with me and my fiance and enjoy Australia? Everyone in Australia does that. Like the gap year is... It's a common, yeah. 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 That you take a year off either before or after or occasionally during college and go get a bit of life experience and relax. You've been schooling for a really long time. Yes. And also, why do Americans not have gap year? I don't understand. I have family in New Zealand and they all have gap year as well. And I'm like, what is going on? This is why so many people are burnt out. And then they also change careers because they're forced or assuming that they have to jump right into school again. You lose perspective because you go straight from forcing yourself through school as hard as you can to forcing yourself through work as hard as you can. And the thing is, life is long and it's not a race. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's not a race whether you're trying to figure out your career or whether you're trying to write a book or no matter what you're trying to do, taking a little extra time to get perspective will never, ever harm what you are doing. And living in another country is just absolutely invaluable. It completely changed my life. And I think it's really, really important, especially now, to have a broader perspective of the world, something that's not just from within the United States. To see our country through the eyes of other people, to see other countries, to live there, to experience what daily life is like for somebody else. It's just an invaluable experience. I had a cultural shock when I went to Asia for the first time. I can imagine. (laughs) Seeing the world news of how they saw America. I was one of those kids who thought America is number one. I'm not going to lie. I was very much... Yeah, I was like, this is the viewpoint. This is the way it is. And then I see how literally World BBC News is portraying us. I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, dang, we make some dumb choices. We are pretty terrible. That's it. But look, until you've been outside your own environment, you're like the fish that doesn't know it's in water. When you say everyone thinks or everyone does or everyone knows, you assume that just means everyone everywhere. And as soon as you've been somewhere and realized they don't all think or do or know the same things as you at all, You can never unlearn that. It means that for the rest of your life, you're going to know that there are people out there having a different experience, especially in America where you guys do have this narrative of like, yeah, we're number one. We're the Mm -hmm. greatest country on earth. I think it's valuable to go other places and hear that people maybe like maybe there are areas where people are doing things differently and it's working. Yes. I mean, especially right now, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes I think about it and like pulling it back. For high schoolers, I know for me, I was having a hard time in elementary school, middle school, where I was bullied. Mm -hmm. I traveled a lot ever since I was young, but I wish it was more intentional and not feeling like I was forced or dragged to go on trips, which sounds so spoiled and, yes, entitled. But at the same time, I'm like, I'd rather stay at home or I wish I could just have a play date. When I was younger, I had strict parenting. And I just realized 
my goodness, I cared so much about what people would think when I got into high school, just cared too much. And if I was more intentional with my travels, when my parents did bring me around and see and actually observe from me wanting to observe other cultures and seeing how there's a much bigger world than this micro world in high school. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Absent travel, I think that's a lot of what the internet can do for today's teenagers is that, you know, 15, 20 years ago, if you were in high school and you were the only one at your school who was into whatever you were into, Mm -hmm. or you didn't know how to find the other ones who were into it, Mm -hmm. you had to wait till college to find your people. Whereas these days you can get online and find your tribe and they might not be in the same place as you are, but they're still your people. And you can still know that, you know, you're not alone and that it's going to change and that you're going to get out there and be a part of a community that works for you. And I think that's wonderful. And that's absolutely what happened with me and Amy. Clearly we both had our friends in real life, but meeting online and becoming friends so quickly and so easily enjoying writing together so much, it really was like finding like a long lost friend or a long lost sister, somebody that just like belongs with you. Oh yeah, we God. like to joke. We like made friends like kindergartners do, where <laughs> yeah. kindergartners talk for like five minutes and then go, we're friends. Yeah. Okay, good. Yep. All settled. Do you remember what was it that brought you guys together? Or do you remember yeah. what each other said? Like that one thing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Essentially, it was kind of a group fan fiction writing role playing kind of situation where everyone would would take different characters from this setting and write them. And we just by sheer coincidence happened to be creating our characters at the same time. And so we were talking away on the chat channel. And one of us said, Oh, we should create some connection between our characters. You know, that's more interesting. And that way, we'll have somebody to talk to when we get into the game, and we won't be alone. Yeah. And so we just started talking about what that could be. And every idea that either one of us had, the other one was like, yeah, perfect. Let's do that. I think just became clear instantly to us that we thought the same way Mm -hmm. and that we wanted to do the same things. And that was kind of that. Yeah. I have it in a log, the very first conversation that Amy and I ever had, because we had it through text. I mean, we had it through writing in this chat channel. So I have it saved on my computer. You still have it now. Yeah. 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 And you could see we liked each other for a minute. One. Yep. Oh my God, guys, this is so freaking romantic in best friend way. <laughs> yeah. Only if we could all have friendships like that. That's amazing. You guys are really lucky you have each other. That's really, really touching to hear. Oh, we are well aware how lucky yeah, we are. Absolutely. You sound like chosen sisters. A lot of our stories actually carry with them themes of the families you choose. Oh, nice. That, I mean, we both have blood-related families that we love. Neither of us Yeah, we're lucky of, that we're both from super yeah. functional, happy, wonderful oh. families. But there is also something wonderful about the family that you choose. Yes. And we are definitely yeah. family that we chose. Yeah, we often say that we're much more like sisters than best friends. Absolutely. Oh. Because, I mean, we've lived together. Meg has come over to Australia twice to live for nearly a year both times. And so you sort of have that intimacy that comes not just with close friendship, but with, you know, having to figure out who's going to do the dishes <laughs> right? and daily life and, you know, looking after the other one when they're sick and all those little things. Which is not to say that we never fight because we do, because <laughs> we're sisters. sisters and sisters fight, but it's always the kind of surface squabble yeah. that will like fight for a while and then somebody will be like, I'm going to make tea. Do you want some? 
and then oh, the yeah. so aggressively I love it okay so is there any passive aggressiveness usually before that tea conversation if we're going to squabble about something 99.9% of the time someone's hungry and hasn't worked it out yet <laughs> oh, so that's so, so cute bad. I mean it's because we both get quite hangry oh it's bad it's and really bad we both lack insight when it is happening <laughs> it's usually quite clear afterwards because you can't work out why you were annoyed about something mm-hmm. But 99.9% of the time, we are either tired or hungry or dehydrated or, you know, have a headache and haven't worked it out yet. And usually the other person is the one who realizes, like, if I'm being pissy and annoying, Amy's like, have you eaten today? (laughs) And I'm like, oh, all right, I'll be back in 10 minutes. Yeah, whereas Megan usually more discreet and just gently puts food down in front of me and edges (laughs) away. It reminds me of me and my best friend, and her name is also Amy. She must be wonderful. She's super sweet. She's like, okay, Pookie, because that's our nicknames for each other. She's like, Pookie, I think it's time to go eat, huh? Like, I'm like, what are you trying to say? And then she's like, um, all right, here's a taco. Here's a burrito. But gently puts it in front of me. But then when she's hungry, she starts to get quiet. Like the color drains from her face. I'm like, girl, we got to eat right now. And she's like, no, no, no. I could continue working. I'm like, no, get your ass up. We're going to go eat now. Yeah. Let's weave it back to you guys. I love that that's how you met. It got even closer. And now, Megan, I assume you lived in Australia for the one year, the first time you went out. But I didn't realize till Amy mentioned that you came out twice to Australia and lived there for nearly two years. Was that a time where you hung out more versus writing? Or was it almost equal, equal hangout? And hey, let's let's jump into this story idea. Let's try this out. Is that when you first pursue the direction of traditional publishing? The first year that I went and lived with Amy, I mean, I still wanted to be an author, but I hadn't really decided, all right, I'm pursuing this right now. I'm, you know, laser focused, going to get this done. So that first year was really more us hanging out and us writing together for fun. And us, you know, binge watching Avatar, The Last Airbender. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Things of that nature. Absolutely. Going to the hot springs, just enjoying being in Australia. The second year that I came to live with her, I had actually, so I had quit my day job in order to attend the Odyssey Writing Workshop, which I highly recommend for any aspiring writers out there. It's a writing workshop geared towards writers of fantasy and science fiction and horror. And it was truly amazing and really jump-started my love of craft in addition to just my sheer love of writing. But I had attended this workshop and was planning to write my first novel and try to sell it. And I'd written the first couple of chapters and I sent it to Amy and I was like, look, I can't stay with my parents any longer. I've got to like stop doing this. I've got to go get a job. I really have to sort of put the writing on the back burner. You, you make it sound so low stakes, but like it was dire when that was well, happening. Well, yeah. So she comes home from this thing and she spends the first two to three months doing what I later found out almost everyone who does something like Odyssey or Clarion or a big writing workshop mm-hmm. does, which is you've just learned so many, quote, rules, end quote, which of course are not rules. They're I'm guidelines like tools, for writing yeah. and tools. But everything you start to write, you think, oh, now, so-and-so said it was a bad idea to start like this, and so-and-so said it was a bad idea to do that. And the truth is, those people never meant you to take them as dictates. They were passing on their toolbox. But I think as a part of the processing and shuffling process and internalizing all that, you start to treat them at first like rules. And so Meg was writing all this stuff, but for the first time in my life, I wasn't seeing any of it because she was like, it's all terrible. It's all <laughs> so bad. You can't see anything. And I'm watching as she's writing all this stuff and and not sharing it, which is weird, and also has gone back to the day job, which is draining her little introvert self. Right. 
she's getting home every night and she's tired from from peopling all day and writing the stuff she won't show me. And I'm thinking, like, I'm starting to worry that this might be the moment she stops. And so I sent the first few chapters of what would eventually become my debut novel, Skylark. I'd sent the first few chapters to her. And then also with this, like, caveat of, look, I'm going to have to put all of the stuff on the back burner. And Amy, in one of the most amazing and generous and wonderful things that she has ever done for anyone in her life, but especially <laughs> for me, invited me to come live with her and her husband Aww. and finish my book without the hassle of living with my parents. I love my parents, but, you know. It's hard to go home once you've is. been out of home. Yeah. And without having to continue at the day job. I mean, I, I kept a, a part-time day job uh, writing online, but I could pick my own hours. I could save my energy for what really mattered. And Amy told me, you know, come live with us, finish your book. And if in a year's time you're no closer to being a published author, then you can go home and, and get your day job and move out of your parents' house and, and all of that. And by the time a year had elapsed, <laughs> you make that sound like it was so much it was so much nicer than it actually was. It was incredibly nice. Are you kidding me? It <laughs> well, changes my life. No, but the way I changed both you, our lives. I believe was actually there is a bedroom, it is rent free, it is yours for a year. If in a year you have not produced a book, God help you, because <laughs> I will come to you in the night. <laughs> okay. Fair I, I know like the healthy dose of motivation and, and gentle, <laughs> gentle you're a great motivator. Yeah, but it, yeah. well, I mean, being a great motivator is about choosing the right mode. And in this particular situation, you know, gentle threats was the correct mode. But I mean, the thing is, the whole decision. Like, I was having this chat with Meg, and I thought oh, she's gonna, she's she's gonna stop. And I literally just went and talked to my husband, and the conversation was about as long as, hey, I was thinking maybe we could get Meg to come and stay in the spare room for a year so she can write her book. Would that be okay? And he goes, yeah, that sounds great. And I walked back to the computer and offer, and that was the whole conversation. It wasn't, you know, oh, gosh, how will it be, and what will we – it was that simple. So well, we had already met yeah. and lived together the first time exactly. I was out there, so knew that we all got along. And the spare room was sitting right there. And by the time that year was up, I had sold my first novel in a three-book deal, and we mm -hmm. were receiving offers on our first book together. Yeah. Damn. So it so worked out pretty well for me as well. well <laughs> and that was a, a perfect yeah. example of do a nice thing for someone else, and it will come back Actually, for you. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of my life philosophy is that if you just try and take care of the people around you, you will find that things turn out all right for you too. And that they take care of you. Yeah. That is the sweetest thing ever. Do you mind me asking, Megan, what was the day job? It was actually the perfect job for me on paper. I was working in publicity and marketing for a firm that handled a lot of entertainment properties. So I was doing a lot of looking through social media and forums about TV shows and video games and movies, which I love. I'm a huge pop culture junkie. And on paper, it was the perfect job for me. There is no better job for me out there in an office. And the fact that I was so miserable doing this job was really my wake-up call to be like, you know what, you really need to get on this writing thing and find out if you can do that because this is not working. Yeah, which is funny because, I mean, I was the day job I had before I became a full-time author, I loved. I was one of those rare people who found a vocation and adored it, which actually probably meant I held on to it a little longer than I should have because I ended up working full-time and writing full-time and then getting really sick as a result yeah. of burning the candle at both ends. And partly that happened because I was I loved it and I was happy and I wanted to keep going. Yours was? Uh, I worked as a mediator. So my job all day was to sit down with parties who had been in conflict usually for years and facilitate a conversation between them. It wasn't my job to tell them what the answer should be or to solve the problem. 
my job was to help them have a conversation with each other in a way they had not been able to have yet. Are we talking about like individuals? It could be anything, but the most common one that I did was individual versus a corporation. Oh, okay. The highest compliment that a mediator can receive is they go in, they have the conversation, they resolve it, and then they turn and look at you and they say, oh, I'm not even really sure that we needed you, to be honest. (laughs) We just, we talked together so well and sorted it out. And they sort of, in that moment, conveniently forget that they've spent the previous two years screaming at each other. (laughs) Probably not a coincidence that the first time they were able to have a civilized conversation was when you you were there. You want to be invisible in that process. And Amy was really, really great at this job because she is charismatic (laughs) and persuasive and personable and also just a little bit cheeky. If you're not acting correctly or not doing what you what would be most helpful in a situation she will just kind of run over you just just a little Lovingly. bit like Lovingly. I say gentle threats or something yes. <laughs> and, and get you back on track but she's always really good at being persuasive and being charming unless I'm hangry in which case so I loved that job very much and also genuinely got to make a difference in people's lives it was the sort of job where I might be able to help someone who had a problem with their bank negotiate to keep their house or you know, another day someone who had lost their entire life savings get some of their money back or get a life insurance payout oh, on someone wow. who you know, it was big ticket stuff and it was wonderful. But most of all what it came down to was imagining that you were that person and imagining how they might see the situation and doing it in a way that was truly free of judgment. Because if you're thinking, well, I mean I guess you would see it this way, then you're not really in their head. You just truly abandon your take on the situation and just see theirs, then you're able to be so much more helpful. And the thing is, that's kind of also what you do when, when you're, you do, when you're a writing book. a character. Yeah. You don't just think, what would this character do? You literally put yourself inside the skin of the character and say, what would I do? You sound like you'd be a great acting coach. My degree in college yeah. was acting. 100% what you study is how to yeah. inhabit your character. So we kind of came at the same techniques just from very different directions. When you're writing your book, and let's just use Unearthed as an example, how does this work with co-authoring? So we each take primary responsibility for one of the two main characters. Yeah, we actually still role play the characters the same way that we role played in the games that we played when we met. We will create our characters and then sort of put them, sort of throw them together in some situation and see what conflicts and tensions and maybe romances might arise. And when even just like what little like ticks of speech or, mm-hmm. you know, what sort of little behavioral things. Little about. unexpected details that sort of bring characters to life. And we each take a character. So in our books thus far, Amy has always written the male characters and I've always written the female characters. And that's true of Unearthed as well. So we get together and come up with sort of a basic idea for what the two characters are. Uh, you know, we're going to have this academic character who's sort of sheltered and, and idealistic, and then we're going to have this more no-nonsense, down-to-earth, street-smart, savvy scavenger girl. And then we go away and we think about our characters and we flesh them out on our own, but they really come to life once we put them together and start seeing what conversations they have or the different ways that they look at what's happening to them in the story. And that's really where the basis of their relationship comes from. And we spend a long time doing the role-playing of the characters before we ever start writing the book. Like including a lot of scenes that will never make it into the book because they're just to get to know them. But it means that then when I sit down to write a chapter from the point of view of Jules, who's, you know, our gentle scholar who's a bit of an indoor pet, you know, he's an archaeologist, (laughs) but he is not equipped for life in the wild at all. 
I know how Mia might speak and I know what she might do and how she might react because ideally what we want is not a chapter in which Jules very realistically does what he would do and then Mia does whatever is convenient to advance the plot. We want Mia to have her own agenda and be her own person who's pushing her own angles, which might not be the ones that he would prefer her to push. And we want those things to be consistent throughout all the chapters rather than sort of an uneven back and forth. We want it to feel like the story was written by one author. In terms of consistency, do you guys have index cards laid out with specific points in direction and the way you guys are navigating where the plot is going? We are constantly in contact. So for all that there's maybe an hour or two of overlap when we're awake, given that Australia's on the other side of the planet, so she's always waking up as I'm going to sleep. We actually talk to each other more than probably anyone else in our lives. And we do it through texting, we do it through email, we do it through instant messenger, we do it through social media, we do it through video chat. Being a writer is a solitary life. You spend a lot of time at home in your Ugg boots. So (laughs) if you have a person that you talk to every single day, then you talk to that person more than you talk to 99% of other people. That's a good point. Yeah. But so, I mean, in terms of planning, it's kind of a little of column A, a little of column B. Like, I mean, we don't use index cards because we're not in the same place, but we have Google Docs where we rough out what might happen. They always say with writers, there are plotters and there are pantsers. And I once heard Victoria Schwab use the phrase, join the dotsers. Uh, which I then promptly stole, but credit to her, because that's sort of what we do. We have sort of about 10 waypoints along the way that we know we'll hit. And then as we reach each one, we think about how we might navigate our way through the next one to two. And we'll do that through both conversation and putting little comments on the manuscript. Like as I write my chapter, I might lay down a comment for Meg saying, I'm thinking maybe that this will pop up again in your chapter when X, and it might work out that way or it might not. Or here in this conversation, we're seeding a fight that's going to happen two chapters down the road, take note of the language they use so that we can, you know, use it against him later, that yeah. sort of thing. I am so scatterbrained. Oh, that's why there's so many comments. It's funny, I'm that way too. It's funny, both Amy and I have our memory mm-hmm. uh, failings. I forget pretty much everything except for story-related plots. Oh, and Amy forgets story-related plots constantly. Immediately. Like, we will brainstorm, and I'll be super in it. And then I'll be saying to Meg, I hope you're writing this down, because you know what's going to happen. And, like, three days later, I'll be writing my chapter, and I'll put a comment on it saying, I have set this up, but I have no idea how we're going to resolve it. I hope you have an idea. And Meg will come back and be like, remember when we talked? (laughs) Remember when we we solved this action? I mean, she's really nice about it. But actual problem... I think, well, I mean, for me, I think that comes down to, you know, they, they say that there are kind of three primary modes of processing. There's visual, audio, and kinesthetic. And audio is a far distant third for me. I, at university, I used to struggle with professors who only lectured and didn't have any notes because it's really hard to take in information that way. And when Meg and I brainstorm, we're usually talking. In terms of it sticking in my brain, nope, not even a little bit. But between the two of us, we can remember pretty much everything we need to remember because Amy remembers everything else and I'll remember the plot point that she's forgotten from our brainstorming session and between us, we kind of cover our bases. Yeah. It didn't just show up. You know, we've been writing books together now since, what, 2012? Must have been 11 when we sold When we sold These Broken Stars. And they think from the outside, it kind of seems like we just showed up this way, fully formed. But the thing is, we've been practicing. We've been writing together for 10 years now. And we were writing together for seven or eight years before we ever tried to write a book together. 
So we know each other so well. Yeah. And you can't manufacture that. You can't just fast forward that kind of relationship. No. And I think, I mean, the other part about it is we both go to a lot of effort to make sure that it works at all times for the other one. So we both know that the other one has, you know, particular ways that they like to receive information or even just we can tell you know what, you're not in the mood to be reminded that we forgot to do X today. Today's a rad day to mm-hmm, remind you yeah. that. I'm going to write it in my diary tomorrow. You know, all of those little things that might seem little, but what they add up to is kind of constantly being as considerate as you possibly can mm-hmm. of the other person. Yeah. And if you're both doing that, it means that when there is the inevitable bump in the road, you both know how much the other one cares and how hard the other one tries. And so it's really easy to figure out how to tackle it. And I mean, the thing is, I absolutely love Amy's writing and she loves mine. Mm-hmm. And that's a genuine feeling on both our parts because, yeah. you know, she might do something in a chapter a little bit differently from the way that I would do it. But the way she does it is always brilliant. And I always trust that she has both our friendship and our careers, but also the manuscript's best interests at heart. She's always working as hard as she can to make that story good. And because we both trust each other and believe each believe in each other's writing abilities it makes collaboration so much easier because you can just say you know what I don't know where you're going with this but I trust you and always always it works out yeah well and but you know what one of the ways it can work out is that you know I do think I know where I'm going with something and I get three quarters of the way down the road to it makes laughing because you know (laughs) not that this has happened recently Mm -hmm. And, and then you get there and you're like I, this Actually, is not I have no work. idea. Yeah, this isn't going to work at all, but I thought. And to be safe to say that to the other one, to be safe to have said, trust me, trust me, and then be like, nope, turns out I was Actually, wrong. I do need help. Yeah, and to know that they'll be, that they'll just be, oh, sure, no problem, instead of any mm-hmm. kind of blame. You know, it's re- you have to make it safe for each other at all times. And like Meg says, you have to love each other's writing because mm-hmm. there's not, you know, there are many ways to co-author together and whatever works for you is the right way to do it. But I think for us, it's about the fact that you wouldn't want to drown out the other person's writing by constantly imposing your own ideas or, you know, your own authority because you like the way they do what they do and you want it in the book. And I mean, we truly do believe that our books together, that our writing together is greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. Um, And so you never, like, I would never, ever want to drown out Amy's voice or change it because together with mine, it ends up better than either of us alone. Talking about this safe space and how it's better together than alone, have you approached a very difficult scene where even if it was just one time throughout co-authoring together, you know, it didn't have to be just unearthed, but overall, where you've really disagreed with a certain scene or maybe a certain direction? Weirdly, we have never had a big disagreement about, whatever. I mean, we've we, we squ- as we said earlier, we squabble all the time about <laughs> Make sure you're well fed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And like sometimes we do have different ideas about where the story should go, but we've never actually had a disagreement where, where one of us is like, you know, I have to put my foot down and say this is the way to go. And I think that that's because of the respect that we have for each other's writing and the fact that if I want option A to happen next and Amy wants option B to happen. <laughs> oh my God, I love that cat. Hi, buddy. And he's like, and I want option C for cat. Yeah. So if I want option A for what's going to happen next, and Amy wants option B, really what's best for the manuscript is sort of secret option C that is a combination of factors of both A and B that ends up being better than either of those things would have oh, been alone. Okay. And honestly, that's the basis for our partnership is that 
when you put our minds together, we come up with things that we never would have come up with on our own. I love that. You know what I was imagining secretly as you were sharing earlier about being hangry? I'm like, oh, I wonder if let's say, Megan, you have a disagreement. Then you show up with a cupcake trying to bribe her. It's like, (laughs) so before I talk to you about this option, just want you to have this cupcake first. That's a really mediation approach. You know, when we're teaching mediation students, we always tell them the story of like the two kids who come to their mother fighting because they both want the last orange. And so she cuts it in half and gives it to both of them. But if she had just paused to ask why they wanted the orange, one wanted to make juice and one wanted seeds to plant for a science experiment. And everyone could have got 100% of what they wanted if they talked a little longer. Compromise. But the thing is, compromise suggests that you're meeting halfway. Or that each person is sacrificing something. something We we never feel that way. No. If one person's not happy, we both know without fail that what that means is we didn't get there yet. And so we just keep digging. So for example, you know, I might want to do an action scene next and Meg might want to do a quiet introspective scene. And we both think that what we've got is a really good idea. So instead of, you know, fighting about it, we'll try and dig to that next layer down and say, okay, why do we want to do those things? And I say, well, okay, I want to do the action scene because amongst other things, I feel like the plot has slowed a little, the pacing has slowed a little, and we need to throw in something now that feels high energy. And Meg might say, Well, you know, I want to do this introspective scene because this big reveal happened last chapter. And I know that with this other scene coming up, the character is now going to respond differently because of that reveal. So we have to go inside her head and see how she's processing it so that when she does respond differently, we understand. Yeah. And in that situation, we're both right. So what we're looking for is, okay, so what can we do that will both up the pacing and show us what she's thinking? And maybe that's she has an explosive fight with someone and accidentally yells what she's thinking or Mm. maybe you know there is the chase scene but throughout the chase scene she's thinking oh my god and now there's been that reveal and I'm never going to get to tell anyone what I think about it or I'm never you know however it works there's something that is not either of us giving up what we feel is right for the story I was gonna say what we want but it's not about what we want yeah like what we feel is is right for the story it's about how do we meet all of those needs for all that we have so much fun and we spend a lot of time laughing and joking with each other. We do take our jobs very seriously. And one of the things that I love about the fact that neither of us is willing to walk away when the other person feels unhappy with a scene, that means that we can look back at the books that we've written together and just feel 100% proud of them and And happy with how they compromise on making it as good as it could be. And never does either of us feel, oh, if only we had done it my way, this scene would have like hit a little harder or this twist would have been a little bit more shocking. I mean, as a result, we are both just like 100% as proud and as happy with the books as we can possibly be. I love this. You guys are such great role models. There are so many listeners in our community who are curious if they wanted to dabble in co-authoring. It's so nice to hear that you can handle things without any conflict escalating. Yeah. I think that one of the most important pieces of advice that we ever got about co-authoring came from Ellen Kushner and Delia Sherman. Yeah, I was just about to say, I, oh my God. You guys are so cute. I was posting stuff so like, I can see Meg has something to say, so I'll mm-hmm. wait until after that. And this is exactly what That's I was so funny. Say. This happens all the time, yeah. though. I mean, this isn't even surprising. <laughs> they came, was it the... So it was 2010, and it was, oh, hi, buddy. So Meg finally put the cat down, and now he's done another lap to come back to my milk been cunningly moved and he's not happy but uh, yeah it was 2010 the world science fiction convention came to melbourne australia and meg was living with us at the time and i lied about having i, I said it was a family reunion which kind of spiritually it was you know the <laughs> it world was science our, fiction our science fiction family but yeah 
So, I mean, if you haven't read Ellen and Delia's work, oh, my so goodness, beautiful. you're in for a treat. Okay, I'll check it out. Yeah, we saw them speak on a panel about co-authoring and we were sort of wanting to do it at the time. But we were know. really afraid that if we tried to work together, it might ruin our friendship. Yeah, or, like what or if we did change. have that fight? Yeah, but we were looking at them and we were like, well, you ladies have stayed married to each other while co-authoring, mm-hmm. so you must know a thing or two. And we literally went to them afterwards and said, can we buy you drinks in the bar and pick your brains, please? Wow. And they were really, really generous with their advice and really sweet and very warm and kind. Yeah. And it just showed us that you can have this process where it is about mutual respect and mutual admiration and that it doesn't have to be adversarial. It doesn't have to be one person's will winning out over the other person. Yeah. I remember we talked to them for ages, but in the end, you know, we said, so, but like, what happens if something goes wrong? And they both kind of looked at us with probably like the wisdom that comes from having done the thing that we were wondering about. We said, well, you just don't let it get in the way, girls. Mm-hmm. You just get over it you just get past it it is possible to just decide that's what you're going to do and do it and you just don't let it ruin your friendship you just don't have that fight it's all about communication I mean both on these micro level in terms of making sure you both have the same goals for the book you both want to write the same you know you both want to spend the same amount of time writing and devote the same portion of your life to writing but it's also just about remembering why you're doing this sorry my cat is just now he's, he's she I, moved I'm gonna okay I'm gonna go put the milk away yeah and then <laughs> right back. sorry she moved it to another part of the table and he sneakily while she was talking crept all the way up there and then stuck his face inside it oh my god spoiler so alert cute. his face did not entirely fit inside yeah. that glass so that was a failure <laughs> but um so she's and now he's eyeballing her because she's just put it in the sink oh he's but, giving her the death stare what more than just gentle, sad betrayal stare? Like, oh, it's like at you. <laughs> oh, could you? Yeah, at you, Meg. At you, Talking about communication. Yeah, and that it's ultimately it's about respect. It's about yeah. you know if you care about the other person more than you care about your book deal or you know your fame and fortune or whatever it is you think that it, you're going to get. I mean, the most yeah. important thing that Amy and I ever did in terms of decisions made about our co-authoring process was that at the end of the day, the friendship and our relationship is so much more important than the work. Like it is so much more important than any yeah, book than any book or any job or anything. If ever, and at this point, I can't imagine it happening no. because we've done four books, five books now, yeah. and this has never happened. But if the work or the book or the writing process ever started to impact our friendship, we would stop writing together. Yeah. Because like years later, trying to count in my head, it must have been five or six years after that initial conversation with Ellen and Delia. I mean, we call them our story godmothers and every time we're in New Aww. York, us. Mm-hmm. and I saw them in London for another World Science Fiction convention and we were having breakfast and I was saying to them, you know, just reflecting on the, the fact that this advice they had given us had completely changed our lives. And I still remember them both looking at me with kind of faint amusement and Ellen saying, God, we sound wise. And Delia <laughs> saying, did we say all of that? And because, you know, to them, they just sort of had been not dispensing wisdom from atop the mountain. They had just been talking about their everyday lives and something mm-hmm. that seemed obvious to them. And having no idea what an impact it would have on us to hear that. And I think that taught us both a really important lesson about the writing world because 
That same convention, Carrie Vaughan, who is an incredible writer, had been one of Meg's teachers at Odyssey. And we ran into her in the, the hallway and, and Meg was sort of, you know, I don't know if you'll remember me. I was part of a large class. And she said, yeah, of course. And then she said, come along to the bar. And she took us in and sat us down with all these writers who to us were gods. Were gods. They were people yeah. we could never imagine We were scared, we were scared to talk in case we said something stupid. And <laughs> after we said to her, oh, thank you so much for bringing us in. We never would have walked up to those people. And I've never forgotten. She looked at us and she said, well, I'm taking you in now. And when it's your turn, you make sure you take the next person in with you. Absolutely. And we have never, and again, talk about things that I bet she just said that and never thought of it again. Mm -hmm. But it completely shaped the way that we've conducted our writing careers. We're always looking for the way to bring the next person in. Yeah, know, And make sure that they know that they need to do it too. Because publishing a book is, fantastic it's an experience like no other you know what you want to do is come into the community not join a competition Mm -hmm. because reading a book is not a bucket list item it's people don't read a book and then say well I've done that now I'm going to learn to knit and then I'll skydive they read a book but then they read another book our books are not in competition with Mm -hmm. each other but sometimes you know people forget that and so reminding people that we're in part of a community that takes care of each other at no matter what level you're at listeners if ever see us at a conference Come up and say hello. We want to talk yeah. to you about your writing. We are not going to blow you off. We're not no, going to. We we'll don't take bite. You to the bar. You guys are just so full of love. I know the listeners are going to get so much from this. And also that tidbit about bringing on the next person. It's just such a wonderful way to set the tone. Oh, yay. Do you mind if I squeeze in some of our listener questions? Not of at course. All. You ladies got quite a lot. However, I realized our listeners had quite a few questions about co-authoring together. We already naturally talked about it earlier. Well, and you know what, though? We covered it in a lot more detail than we often do because you asked about it really well. Yeah. well often we get questions about the mechanics. Who writes which character? And oh, and you pass the manuscript back and forth. We actually talked, I think, much more about the ethos of it and the yeah, approach and the sort that of we emotional take in approach. a way that we yeah. don't often get to. So thank you for that. No, thank you for opening up in that way. <laughs> but thank you for that. I'm going to read off some names. They were so sweet. They're so excited about you guys on the show. So we have Andy Oum, and she said that she just bought your book yesterday. A lot of exclamation marks. I would say about Thank six. Thank you, Andy. Yes. And she's like, eek. So she's super excited. We have Erica Cruz, who wrote, I'm a huge fan of the Starbound series. The Aww. writing is gorgeous, and the stories are second to none. Oh, wow. Thank you. She is a big fan of yours, and she said, you're a fan for life, Erica Cruz. But also, we already covered, because she was asking about the process of co-authoring and about writing the chapters. We covered all of that. Desiree Falardo, she's also a huge fan of you both. And also want to know about co-authoring as well as Jessica James. She's like, you girls beat me to it with asking the questions. I will go to Desi K. Bekirova, who said this is kind of falling under the category of co-authoring questions. And she would love to know if you have any tips for finding a great writing partner. And I know that we already discussed that you guys, this is like eight to 10 years in the process. Your relationship, your dynamic, your sisterhood. For people like Desi who are out there wanting to try a hand at co-authoring and wanting to, you know, dabble in it for the first time, do you have any tips on perhaps maybe other co-authors you guys have met throughout your journey? Two things come to mind right off the bat. And one is sort of calls back to what Amy said earlier, which is that it's not a race. I think going into looking to find somebody that you're going to click with right off the bat and want to write with right off the bat, I think that sets a lot of pressure 
on a developing relationship. And I think it's sort of asking a little too much and letting that relationship develop organically is really important. And then the other thing I would say is that writing conferences are actually a really great place to find people to write with. And if you can't go to one in person, you can always go online. Absolutely. To sites like, oh, yeah. So, I mean, there's, you know, all the, all the forums, obviously, like Absolute Ride. Yeah, you know, Maggie Steve Steve Blue Boards. Are they still there? Partner. Yeah, they are. Blue Boards. Maggie Steve Water runs a Critique Partner Connect every year and mm-hmm. Publishing Crawl, the website, usually runs one as well. And I would say that I think finding critique partners first might be a good Absolutely. way to find somebody to write with because when you're trying to work out whether you can be great friends with someone and terrible co-authors, I'm, mm-hmm. I am Absolutely. sure. And I think when you're looking for a co-author, what you're looking for is someone who has the same approach as you in the ways that matter. That's a whole bunch of stuff, but it could be their approach to from everything from how fast are you going to write the book to what are your hopes for it through to how do they approach critique and how do they approach disagreement and so on. And I think critique partners can be a great place to find that because you know how that person writes, you know how they think, they know the same things about you. And they've got a familiarity with your writing style and vice versa. Yeah, so everyone knows what they're getting Mm -hmm. into. But I don't know any co-authors, and I'm positive they're out there, but I don't know any who have set out to hunt for someone and then found it. No. I I only know co-authors who have either known each other, either through being friends or critique partners, and have then decided to write something together Mm -hmm. after that relationship came first. Yeah, and I think my other sort of like – kernel of wisdom, I suppose, for for anyone who might be interested in in co-authoring a book is for all that we've talked about how we do it here, that doesn't mean that that's how you should do it. No, everybody writes books differently. And I feel like there's really only one hard and fast rule about writing. And it's that there really aren't any rules. And if anyone tells you that there's a specific way to do something or, or that your way of doing it is just flat out wrong, don't trust them. Yeah, they're well, selling something. That's what I was going to say. As, as my other co-author, Jay Kristoff, likes to say, anyone who says that here are the rules is usually about to ask for your money. Yeah. Mm, okay, <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. So, well, and or as you know, I think the only hard and fast rule in the writing world is follow the submission guidelines. Yep. And apart from that, mm-hmm. but I think I don't know. I mean, the way we co-author, that mutual respect is at the bottom of it. And I don't know that you can go cruising for that. I think you have yeah, to find it. First. You have to develop it. Okay. That's really helpful. It's like you can't necessarily set out to find your one true love. You know, you have to try to just meet people and see what happens. Right. I think it's the same with writing partners as with life partners. Yeah, that's a really good point. We just recently for the private Facebook group, there was one of our members, Pooja, she had asked if we could put up a thread where she could find a writing buddy. I wasn't really sure. I'm like, wait, writing buddy versus critique partner. I wasn't really sure the difference. Mm -hmm. And then she was looking for someone where you can kind of have accountability with like a more intimate accountability rather than like a huge group check-in, you know, and whether that's privately emailing each other and saying, hey, you got this. Or let's say one of the writers is not even in that stage of writing yet, but just more so formulating and brainstorming ideas like she would love to have someone to bounce off. So for me, I'm like, I wonder that sounds like a great place to start putting out feelers and seeing like, hey, maybe this person can grow eventually. If not, at least you got a wonderful accountability partner. You found a friend. Yeah, I think it makes sense. You go on the dates and you see what happens. Mm -hmm. That's true. I know that you mentioned it's good for writers to ask, what is your approach in critiquing? Are there any other questions in this thread of our Facebook group where they should ask each other? When you're going to any partnership, whether it is you know an accountability cheerleading partnership or whether it is critique or whether it is writing together, it's just important to have a long conversation with the person in which you, I guess, start at the beginning of the process and think your way through it. And at each point, 
ask yourself, what are the expectations I have? Because that's when you surface the different expectations that you might have. You know, if you're grabbing a brand new critique partner and one of you thinks, oh, I can turn around a chapter in a month and the other one thinks, well, I can do it in 48 hours and that's what I need. You know, find that out at the start so the person who didn't know that they were committing to 48 hours doesn't end up feeling terrible about it. That's why it all comes back to communication. You have yeah. to sort of ask these questions. Yeah, well, you know, as we were saying back at the beginning, it's very easy to grow up thinking, well, everyone says slash thinks slash knows. But no, they don't, not every writer has the same approach as you. So to surface as many as you can. And to have that conversation right up front about what you'll do if it doesn't work out, whether that's, you know, we'll, be, we'll stop critiquing each other and it'll be fine, or we've started to write a book now. If one of us walks away, does the project just go? Or does, is the other one allowed to pick it up? And Ooh, there's no right answer question. to any of those. But it's often better to talk about it in advance rather than when the thing is happening. I mean, we've never had that, but I would imagine it would be a tense time. Yes, that's a really good point to bring up. Thank you so much for that. And I'm going to squeeze in one more listener question, Jessica. James, I am so excited for this episode. I'm such a huge fan of Amy and Megan's. And I learned so... so Right? She continued to say, and I learned so much about writing my own space project from reading Starbound. My question for both of them is, how do you approach writing for sci-fi versus fantasy? I enjoy writing both, but sometimes switching between the two can feel daunting. For me, the difference between writing science fiction and writing fantasy is, I mean, this is a little bit into the sort of craft area of discussing writing, but it has to do with what you want the manuscript to ask of the reader and what you want the reader to ask of themselves as they're reading. I think science fiction asks these really big questions. (laughs) Science fiction asks these really big questions like who are we, uh, you know, as humankind, who are we? What's our, buddy, you're a cat. You're not humankind, buddy. You know, who are we? What was I thinking? (laughs) Who are, what do we want to do? And what do we want to do? Yeah. Where are we going? What do we want to become? And fantasy is much more, despite the fact that fantasy can be very epic and on a huge scale, I think the questions it asks are much smaller. They're much more personal. It's much more about like the hero's quest and the yeah. hero's personal journey. Like they're not lesser questions at all. No. But are, instead of being who who do we want to become, they're who do I yeah. want to become. Maybe. Which is not to say that there there isn't overlap between them. Um And that there isn't like sort of shared space between those two genres. But I think that the difference is more on like the kind of questions that, that you ask as a reader, as you're reading. Yeah. And, you know, I'll take the technical side of it, which is do not imagine for a moment that writing fantasy lets you off the hook in terms of tying yourselves in knots with fact checking. Oh, Anyone yeah. who has ever gone halfway through a book, but wait, my magic system doesn't work at all. This is terrible. Or, but wait, wouldn't their horses be dead by now? Or, you know, whatever it is. There's still a phenomenal amount of stuff to check and look up mm. and you still have to have it in both of them because mm-hmm. although the right, the reader might not be thinking, but wait, wouldn't their horses be dead by now? Although in the worst case scenario, and that's when you know it's gone bad, they do start asking those sorts of questions. But even if they're not, on some level their brain is thinking this isn't plausible and they start to check out. So the more realistic you can make both worlds, the better, and that means lots of research lots of figuring out what the rules are and keeping to them you know if in your fantasy world you know a page can never talk to a king 
then you need a reason for the page to be able to talk to the king in this particular situation. Thank you so much. That was really good. I would love for you guys to share a book or a few books that you swear by that have impacted you as storytellers. <laughs> Apart from where the wild things are. Well, I know Amy's. Yeah. Well, yeah, mine has been I can answer. I can answer for Amy. <laughs> when she was young, she had a librarian named Mrs. Anya, who gave her a copy of The Dark is Rising mm-hmm. by Susan Cooper and told her that it was her desert island book and that Amy needed to read it. Yeah. And then a week later, I was given my first ever book voucher. And so I went down to my little local bookshop, which is still my little local bookshop. And I, I actually got the five book bind up of the whole series. And I read that book every year at Christmas. If, if I ever meet Susan Cooper, I will not only embarrass myself, but everybody else present <laughs> in that conversation, guaranteed. <laughs> like, I don't even know if I want to in case the meltdown is that bad. <laughs> because that book transported me. And every time I write, that is what I'm trying to do for my reader. I'm trying to give them that same sense of of awe and those same tingles down the spine. And, and lots of parts of that book are very pedestrian. They're about being an 11 year old and trying to be on a secret magical quest while your mother wants you to be home on time. So it's not that it was, you know, the soaring to great heights in this incredible epic fantasy world, but it was the way it dragged me into the story and and wouldn't let me go amazed me. And I've never forgotten how that story made me feel ever. And I think for me, I've had a lot of books that inspired me or that taught me about the kinds of stories that I wanted to tell of authors like Robin McKinley, Diana Wynne Jones, Tamara Pierce. But I think, yeah, (laughs) Tamara Pierce is a favorite favorite of both of ours. But I think, I think one of the books that had the greatest impact on me and continues to have a great impact on me is The Last Unicorn by Peter (laughs) S. Beagle. Because it was the book that really taught me that prose alone could be transportative and beautiful, that it didn't have to be in the form of poetry to be beautiful that it could be almost a visceral kinesthetic experience to read beautiful prose. And until then, I had really only noticed character and story. I had never really noticed the way word choice and the rhythm of language in a sentence could change your experience of reading, could make you feel differently, could make you feel something more than just the sum of the meanings of the words. And that, for me, was a really huge moment, I think, in, in my sort of development as a budding writer, because it made me look at my own prose and it made me say, how do I do that? How do I, how do I explore language beyond just the pure meaning? How do I explore that and, and em, em, employ that in my own writing? We're going to get all those listed down, and I'm very interested in reading all of them. Could you wrap up and let us know what you both are really excited about right now, what you're looking forward to together? Right now, we're finishing the sequel to Unearthed, which we're, well, by the time this airs, we will probably have finished it, which we're right now calling Unrevealed because we're not supposed to tell anyone what the title is. Uh, And that kind of helps us, that kind of prevents us from accidentally saying it aloud, which we've (laughs) nearly done many, many times. Yeah. So right now, that's absorbing a lot of what we're thinking about. Mm-hmm. So right now we've just finished tour and I'm staying at Meg's house. So we're talking about stories pretty much nonstop. And we're talking a lot about the stuff that we have coming because Meg is editing the next book she has out, uh, which she's not allowed to tell you what it is yet. <laughs> uh, but, you know, her last solo book was Hunted, which was 
I'm, I'm telling all of this because, you know, <laughs> I keep edging closer and closer to the line of what I'm allowed to say while Meg watches me in fear. <laughs> and, 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 and very sort of nervous anticipation <laughs> because, yeah, of what um, she's going to say. Because if one of us is going to misbehave, it's definitely going to be me. Yeah, <laughs> um, but, you know, so Hunted was this amazing feminist retelling of Beauty and the Beast where Beauty takes agency and goes after the Beast to hunt it down. And this new book, which I got to read the ending of last night, and literally I was in Meg's bathtub reading the ending <laughs> of it, and she came and was like, you okay in there? Because it had been a while, and I was like, go away. And she's like, do you need me? I'm like, no. Because <laughs> uh, like, I could not be interrupted in that moment. But the way I, just I'm had to, I just had to kind of quietly tiptoe away again and leave her to it. Yeah, but the way I'm describing it to people is to say that if, like me, you barely made it out of 2017, then this is the kick-ass feminist gender-flipped retelling that you desperately need with bonus mansplaining section. <laughs> and right now, because Meg's editing that, that's one of the things that we're really pumped about. Because even when we write solo, we're not really writing no, solo. We you know, really we both put our fingerprints all over it. And we both read each other's manuscripts as they're being written. Yeah. So, I mean, in this book that Amy is talking about, I had set up these character dynamics that I wasn't even aware of. And she came in and was reading and she was like, oh, so I see you're setting up a romance between these two characters. I'm like, no, I'm not. God, that's, oh, wait a second. Oh, I totally am. She knows me way <laughs> too well. And, you know, thankfully she saw it when she did or I would have had to like rewrite 40,000 words of this manuscript when I figured it out myself. <laughs> yeah, so I'll take full credit for that, of course. And uh, tomorrow we're actually going to, so one of the things that we do when we're brainstorming is we like to go to hot springs, which is very specific, but like something about sitting in the hot water and being outside. Yeah. Everyone knows ideas come in the shower and we can't really jump in the shower together. <laughs> no, not without like crossing a few boundaries of our friendship. Yeah, right? there are some. <laughs> and so the hot springs kind of yeah. a version of that. And so we're going tomorrow to the hot springs near my house and we're going to be talking about the sequel to a book that Amy has coming out in March called Ice Wolves, which is her very first solo book. And it's oh, amazing. So it's so good. She has nothing to be nervous about. It was so, I said, we, when we were on tour, I said to a bookseller, oh, I'm, I've never done this without a co-author before. I'm nervous about being alone. And she took my hand. She said, you're not alone. No. <laughs> Because you're not. It's such a great book. It really is. It's a middle grade novel set in sort of an Icelandic inspired fantasy world in which these children with certain blood will be able to turn into dragons and wolves when they reach a certain age. It's just so full of magic and humor and heart. Like I'm getting emotional. Like I'm not even sure I'm going to be able to finish talking about this because it's <laughs> such a good book and I love it so much. But you it is what? so. It's, it's my Dark is Rising book. It's my it attempt is. to write something that makes people feel like I did when I was 11. And it works. I mean, when you read this book, you feel like you're 12 years old again and lost in a book in a way that you, at least for me, I rarely feel that way as an adult. And this book just like brings you back to that place where you're just completely transported by a story. You just described that so beautifully, Meg. It sounds so freaking good. And that title is sexy as hell. <laughs> but I think it's telling that when you say, what are we pumped about right now? We're like, just more stories. More really. stories. Yeah, and the I stories that. that the other person wrote, I yeah. think. I mean, that's not rehearsed. <laughs> that is what we get excited about. Amy, you brought up Meg's The Retelling for Beauty and the Beast. And we actually had a question from one of our listeners about it. Desiree Pilardo, she said, for Megan, I'd love to know how it was for her to write a Beauty and the Beast retelling 
Was she ever worried about how many other retellings of the story there are? And did you take inspiration from a certain version like Disney, La Belle at La Bette, etc.? I've loved the story of Beauty and the Beast. Like many people, I've always had a really soft spot in my heart for that story. And I loved the Disney version when I was a kid. And I totally identified with Belle as, you know, a bookworm myself. And I had that whole experience that millions of other kids have had. But for me, as I grew up, I sort of became less and less comfortable with the story. And I both mean the Disney version and the original La Belle et la Bette French fairy tale in that the beauty character, the heroine of the story lacks agency. She's a captive and the way that she frees herself is by falling in love with the beast and making him fall in love with her. And it's all very passive and sort of quiet And she never really takes charge of herself or her life or her situation. And my love of the story never waned in the face of that, but it made me ask myself some questions. And I had always wanted to do a retelling of that story, but I never knew what I was going to bring to the table that was different from what had gone before. I mean, the question mentions, was I ever worried about the, the sheer volume of Beauty and the Beast retellings out there? And that's definitely what kept me from writing mine for a long time. But once I realized that I wanted to have a main character who does all those things, takes charge and has agency and goes out and makes her own story. Once I knew that, I wasn't nervous about the other retellings that exist at all, because I knew that my version was going to be something that only I could tell. I mean, fairy tales are classic for a reason. The themes and the settings and the characters that they explore are classic for a reason. They'll never go out of style. And I think as long as the person who's writing the retelling is being, I mean, this is super corny, but as long as they're being true to themselves and their version of the story, the version that they tell is going to be different from the story that anyone else in the world could tell. I mean, it's going to be unique because only you can write the story that you're writing. Well, and you know, I think that actually goes way beyond retelling. Because I remember quite early on when Meg was just getting ready to query her first novel, Skylark. Um, I'm laughing because I know exactly what story Amy's about to tell. Yeah, so we were, you know, but uh, we didn't know what we were doing. And no. we were combing the internet. And we saw that this book called Under the Never Sky by mm-hmm. Veronica Rossi had just sold. And, you know, when a book sells and they list it on Publishers Marketplace, it's just like a couple of line description. And the couple of lines were basically saying a girl escapes from a domed city into uh, an apocalyptic land where there's wild magic and meets a, a wild boy. And Meg was like, I was oh, devastated. Was devastated was, because that's how that's a description of Skylark. And Meg was saying, word. oh, my God, someone already wrote my story. This is the worst. You know, I, I trashed the whole thing. You know, all the things that you think instantly when you have mm-hmm. some big setback. I feel like the only reason I was helpful in that situation is because I didn't know enough to, yeah. to know that what I was saying might not be right. But I was like, well, why don't you find out who the agent was for that book? Because that agent probably likes that kind of story because, look, they just sold one. And that agent was Josh Adams of Adams Literary. And And he is now my agent and Amy's agent and Jay's agent. Yeah. And and in fact, it turned out he did like that kind of story. And in fact, he knew how to sell that kind of story. Mm -hmm. And it also turned out that although Under the Never Sky was a spectacularly good book, it was nothing nothing like like Skylark. Skylark. And I so often see writers saying oh I wanted to do x but a book just sold that was just like it or yeah I just read something that was you know heard about something that was just like it or I named my character this and now this big blockbuster book has the character of the same name or yeah and the thing is 
just none of that matters. No, it really doesn't. You could take 10 authors who all even write the same kind of thing and give them the same description of a book and sit them all down and you would get 10 wildly different novels. Absolutely. And it just, it doesn't matter at all whether someone has done something that you think might be the same because only you can tell your version of it and it will be different. Standing ovation for that one. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you for covering that because I don't think ever on the show I've been intentional in asking questions that would touch on like what happens if you feel like, oh, my story's been done already. Let's just scrap it. I don't think ever. It's yeah. something we see all the time in forums or even in reviews. Sometimes for reviews of our own stuff, we'll see people being like, oh no, I was going to do a story like this, but now I can't. And it's so hard not to jump. I mean, we try to, we don't ever comment on reviews or no. we try not to jump into conversations about books because we feel like people on the internet want to be natural and yeah. not feel like the authors are, are breathing down their necks. But it's so hard not to jump in and be like, oh man, girl, just write that book. It's not going to be the same. There's no possible way that it could be no. the same. Well, and if anything, if there's any similarity, all that suggests is that there's a market for there's that a market kind of for it. Mm -hmm. it Somebody bought that book, so they probably want to buy yours too. Yeah. And probably there are editors out there who didn't get that book, but who still like that idea. And, still, and they're looking know, for their version of it. Yeah, there's the editor. That's a good point. Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. who, didn't, who lost that auction or who didn't get it through the acquisitions meeting or couldn't convince someone from somewhere to do something or caught a cold and was too slow to bid on it. Who even yeah. knows, you know? You mentioned that you're now all represented by the same agent. <laughs> was it because of through referrals from one of you? Yeah, so kind of an interesting story how it all happened. But I signed with Josh for my first trilogy, Skylark. And at that time, I was living with Amy, and we were role-playing these characters named Lilac and Tarver. And with whom your listeners may be familiar. Mm, a little bit. And we'd been playing with them for about a year, and we were like, you know what, maybe, maybe there's actually something to this whole writing thing. And maybe if we're so enamored of these characters after a year, that other people might find them interesting too. And so we sent a sample of what would eventually become These Broken Stars to Josh, to my agent. And he was like, yep, okay, sign me up. And so actually, Amy's actually signed with Josh's wife and business partner, Tracy. Mm -hmm. But honestly, they're both, both our agents, really. Yeah, uh, and they absolutely. work together. Yeah, but I think because I had this rare opportunity, which most people don't have, most people you know, it's terrifying signing with an agent because it's a little bit like being asked to choose a monster truck mechanic when you don't know anything about monster <laughs> trucks, you know? Yes. And the one the one who has the shiniest website may not be the best match for you and the one that's brilliant for someone else may just not be a personality match for you and it's no reflection on anyone. But I had the opportunity to see Meg working with her agent over, over a long yeah. period of time and to think, oh, you guys are great. You are so good at your jobs and you're exactly what I would want as well. So... I'm that very rare author who got to sign on to an agency already knowing what the deal was and knowing what, what they were like and how they did business. Not many people get. Although a lot of people, I think, feel that most people get their agent by a referral, the truth is that most writers I know got their agent by cold query. Yeah, most, and that's how I got yeah. mine. I mean, that's how I originally signed with Josh. And I had no credentials to my name, no prior publications, nothing. You know, the little bio section of my query letter was just, you know, my name is Megan Spooner. This is my book. Yeah. Thank you for your consideration. And that was it. Yeah. And I think there is this perception out there that you need to know someone or get a special referral or enter via a competition or via some kind of program. And but that's really the exception. Not true. Yeah. Those are perhaps the stories you hear about because they are the exceptions. 
and they make a better story for the retelling <laughs> yeah. than, well, I did my I research. I followed the and rules and I, did yeah. what I was supposed to. Yeah, I found yeah. a bunch of agents I thought might suit me and I queried them like I was meant to do. That's not a very exotic story, so people don't tell that one, but it's, it is the story most of the time. Mm-hmm. Just makes it so much more accessible, you know, especially for listeners. So many of them are at that stage of querying, so it just makes it feel even more empowering. Absolutely. And plus that experience of researching the agents, it's really vital to do that. Whether you get referrals to agents or not, it's really vital to do the research because it's through that research that you figure out what you want in an agent. I know the agent that I started out thinking I really wanted, I ended up, I did get an offer from her, but it turned out we just weren't a good fit. Yeah, and we um, should add, she's a great agent for some other people. Yeah, absolutely. It just wasn't the right fit for me. I mean, it's a little bit instinct. It's a little bit, how does this conversation on the phone feel? Do I feel like I'm being heard? Do I feel like, but it's also just, a sense of can this person sell my work and can they sell the version of my work that I want the world to see because agents will always have ideas for how to spin or pitch your story and you have to make sure that the story they're pitching is the story you're writing that's why one agent might be great for one person and not so great for another and vice versa is that everybody wants different things out of the books that they're selling yeah you know if you write quiet novels in verse, an agent who specializes in selling kind of like action-packed adventure might be amazing at that, but not great for you. Because if they describe your novel in verse in a way that makes it sound more adventurous than it is, then you're just going to get a whole bunch of editors reading it, expecting one thing and getting another and thinking, this doesn't work for me at all. So it's about finding your fit. Yeah. And like some agents specialize in having great foreign rights contacts. Some agents specialize in in providing good editorial feedback to get a book in its best possible shape. Some agents specialize in having just tons of connections in the publishing industry. And the thing is, like, you won't know which of those things is most valuable to you until you start doing the research. Yeah. And good for you for also standing your ground and knowing that it wasn't the direction you wanted the story to go. I'm just imagining myself. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, just to know there's an offer, I could see how I would get easily excited and be like, just because I want it to go through and all this work that I put into my manuscript, I just want it to be published already. Okay, then yeah, let's go. Absolutely. Well, I think it comes back to what Amy was saying about how it's not a race. I mean, the thing is, ideally, your agent is the person who's at your side for the rest of your career. When you're an aspiring writer and and all you want is to get published, you, you have your eye on it as a finish line. When you actually look at it from our perspective, that's the starting line. Yeah, that's actually the plane leaving the runway. You yeah. have the whole flight ahead of you. And you want to make sure that you have somebody with you who's there for the whole journey, who wants to see you succeed rather than just sell one book. You have to be prepared to stand by your work the whole way through. Absolutely. Well, I was talking to a writer friend just this morning who was feeling really stressed because she's writing something later in a series and was concerned, oh, I feel like some of the readers are hoping for this and some of the readers are hoping for that. And I'm you know, I don't want to disappoint them. And we were talking about the fact that ultimately those readers don't, what they what they want is a story the way she tells it because that's what they've fallen Absolutely. in love with. And we all, I mean, it's like when we're, when we're all, say, watching TV and we're like, would that couple just kiss already? And then as soon as they do, we're like, oh, it's boring now. Yep. You know, yes. we, we think we know what we want, but good writers don't necessarily give us what we want. They, they give us what we love. And it's the same when you're writing your book, you know, you might have people saying to you, oh, it'd be great if it was this, it'd be great if it was that. But if you know what you want it to be, 
it will be the best and most pure form of itself if you stand by your vision. And so it's like the song says, you don't always get what you want, but you get what you need. Exactly. Let's wrap it up with where our listeners can find you. Absolutely. On social, my Twitter is Amy Kaufman and my Instagram is Amy Kaufman author because some lady in Louisiana (laughs) took Amy Kaufman. (laughs) How dare she? Any pictures? How dare? (laughs) Uh, But the most important place that you can find us jointly is if you head to either of our websites, mine is amykaufman.com, there's a sign up on the front page for our newsletter, which Meg and I run together and we use it. We don't send it out super often, but we use it to tell uh, readers when we have a new book coming out or when we're going on tour or Or when there's a contest where they can win free stuff. Oh, how fun. Yes, everyone sign up, please. Right. We throw in, you know, kind of deleted scenes and stuff. We treat it as a place to make sure we reward our Our most loyal readers. So that's the most important place to find us. But what about you, Meg? And then I'm also, you can also find a sign up for our newsletter on my website, which is just meganspooner.com. And then on both Instagram and Twitter, my username is just Megan Spooner. So awesome that you got all of them. I know. Well, Bro. part of it is because my name is spelled so weird. It's M-E-A-G-A-N. <laughs> so nobody else has that name. So I lucked out. I thought no one else had Yin Chang, but apparently there's several Yin oh, Changs. No. I'm like, and they're male. I'm like, damn it. Uh, Ladies, that was amazing. You covered so many things and you covered it so patiently. The way you answered was just so kind. Oh, Thank you both so much. Oh, our pleasure. And that wraps up our episode with Amy Kaufman and Megan Spooner. Amy and Meg, thank you for a really wonderful conversation and for being so real and transparent about everything. I especially loved getting a glimpse into your sisterhood and your friendship with each other. You both are some serious friendship goals. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in. As always, please say hi to Amy and Megan on Twitter at Amy Kaufman and at Megan Spooner and head over to their show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash Amy Kaufman dash Megan Spooner. Don't forget to head over to our Instagram account today to watch their takeover at instagram.com slash 88 cups of tea. You'll get a fun sneak peek of their life as writers. For my New York and East Coast listeners, I'll be moderating a panel called Seven Asian American Authors You Should Be Reading, hosted by the New York Public Library and features authors Stacey Lee, Rhoda Baeza, Sona Charapatra, Emily XR Pan, Karuna Riazi, and two of our very own 88 Cups of Tea guests, Heidi Heilig and Jenny Han. It's all happening in New York on Saturday, February 17th at 1 p.m. at the Chatham Square Library location. This is my first panel discussion that I'm moderating, and I would love for you to be there. If you enjoyed today's episode or if it helped you in any way, please support our show by taking a moment to subscribe to 88 Cups of Tea on iTunes and please leave a rating and a review. Producing a podcast takes a lot of time and we put a lot of heart and soul into making 88 Cups of Tea the best that we can make it. When you take those specific actions of subscribing, leaving a rating and a review, that really helps our show become more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before and we're really trying to get the word out about our podcast. Thank you so much in advance for helping us grow our community. Don't forget to join our private Facebook group if you want to hang out with fellow writers and listeners from 88 Cups of Tea and also be a part of shaping our community. I am so excited to see you in there. You can find us at 88cupsofteacom slash FB group. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week, and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.